welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I am joined by Christoph Rudig, and he's a trained medical doctor and veteran health tech investor. Christoph joined Albion VC in 2011 and in his role as partner, he invests in digital health, life science companies, partnering with businesses that span the breadth of healthcare from early stage biotech to e-clinical technologies to telehealth. He holds a doctorate in medicine from, and let me get this right, Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich and an MBA from INSEAD. I believe that's number one ranked Christoph, so uh, yeah, what a background that is. Uh, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, James, and thanks for having me. Not at all, not at all. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Christoph? I I am in London. I'm in our offices in uh, in lovely Farringdon in London. Excellent, excellent. Cool. So, Christoph, uh, the way that we start these podcasts is for you to tell your story. Obviously, we've we've had a little bit of an intro there with uh, all the different bits and bobs that you're up to now and and your routine. But it'd be great to uh, put some flesh on those bones. So, tell us tell us all about your story, sir. Of course, happy to. Uh, so, uh, as you already alluded to, I'm a trained medical doctor. So, um, I guess I you know studied medicine, and I'm originally from Germany. So. Uh, your pronunciation of Ludwig's Maximilian's uh, university was actually spot on. So well done, <laughs> that's my GCSE actually, German which, coming back to me there. Yeah, no, yeah, well, well, well done. The, the short <laughs> form, uh, which everybody uses in Germany, by the way, is LMU. If nice. if you ever 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 get asked again, um, but that's where I studied medicine, um, and then I practiced as a radiologist for uh, about sort of two years, um, uh, which I really enjoyed. You know, I loved you know working. I guess you know, with, with, uh, with patients, uh, and with other, uh, clinicians, the thing I didn't realize was that as a radiologist, um, you tend to spend most of your time in the basement in dark rooms. And that's not necessarily because you need to look at uh, pictures, because uh, now it's all on computers anyways. Uh, it's because these, the heavy equipment, the CT machines and the MRI machines are just too heavy to be put uh, into anything else but the basement. <laughs> uh, I mean, some of your listeners may know this, but or may have experienced um, sort of getting an MRI scan and CT scan done, and they, especially the MRI scans, they tend to be in the in the basement, and that's where I was mm. really. You know, I mean, not quite twenty four seven, but a lot of time. I didn't really see much sunlight, and so that was actually quite depressing, mm. and I didn't quite realize that. And so um, that was one of the reasons why I decided, look, you know, maybe there's a sort of a career outside of medicine outside of the basement um, and um, you know I was quite young at the time didn't really know what to do and so I thought well actually why don't why don't I try consulting because mm. you know what I think the, the strategy consultants do quite well is they expose you to a number of different industries clients situations they train you up very well in in quote-unquote business which you as a you know as a medical doctor medical student don't really have exposure to and so that's what I thought. So I interviewed with a, a number of the consultancies um, and eventually ended up at, at, at one called Bain, Bain & Company, mm -hmm. which I then did for about three, between three to four years. And that was based out of the Munich office. Um, but because actually at Bain, 
medical doctors were quite a rarity. I was sort of sent around the globe whenever there was a healthcare client. I I was sort of the doctor on the case. Mm. So um, spent traveling. Well, I quite enjoyed that. Um, and uh, and then did my MBA uh, sort of in between. This is the other thing. These consultancies um, tend to be quite good at. They they sponsor. MBO programs in particular for people who haven't got an economics background or mm. business background. So I then went to, to INSEAD, uh, as you said, and um, and that's where I met my future wife, who isn't a uh, German speaker. Um, she's actually, um, she's Chinese of heritage. I sort of decided, well, you know, can't go back to Germany because she's not a German speaker. So, you know, we needed to go to an English speaking country and were, um, because she was, she was schooled in America, but grew up in sort of uh, in Asia, part of it's mm-hmm. in, in Hong Kong, we were looking at all sorts of different places. But actually, the UK was the the, the ideal choice because it was relatively close for me. Um, it was at the time it was quite a lot easier for sort of international students who hadn't got a a European passport to get a sort of a permanent residence status. And uh, my wife's passport actually happened to be Thai, uh, which is which is difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's you know we sort of settled on on the UK actually primarily for that reason. Funny enough. We then ended up in, I think it was 2006, we ended up in, in London and um, I was I was looking for a job and, um, you know, following the MBA, I, I sort of thought, well, actually, what do I want to do? Do I want to be in consulting for the rest of my life? And and I sort of thought, well, it's, it's a really interesting um, career and it's a really interesting job and you work with, you know, with sort of blue chip clients, with senior management, you learn a lot, you pick up a lot, but ultimately it was quite sort of project-based, short-term. And actually, one thing I didn't quite realize at the time, I realize now, it's not a business where you've got a sort of a recurring revenue, which is something that I think in the in the VC world, people look at quite, which because, so basically means you have to sort of constantly sell, you know, projects. And, and so, I, you know, I just, I just sort of decided it wasn't really for me. So I was looking for something else. And um, at the time, actually, the private equity industry was quite hot. Uh, this was before the financial crisis of 2008. Uh, so I was interviewing with a bunch of PE funds, but then I also started um, interviewing with VC funds and realized actually this is this is where I want to be because it sort of combines, I guess, investing with science and mm. you know with sort of growing things properly. Um, so I ended up at um, at a place called Three I, um, mm. which is uh, which was at the time one of the largest venture capital investors in um, in the UK, almost Europe, um, you know, big team um, and uh, and really enjoyed that. So, you know, it's part of the UK VC team um, doing really sort of the, the, the breadth of things from um, from biotech uh, investing to medtech investing all the way to sort of more commercial stuff. Uh, and this was in 2000 and, uh, 2006. Um, and I, I would call those, I guess, the, the sort of dark ages of VC in Europe. Mm-hmm. I, what I hadn't realized was that actually that uh, at that time, you know, venture capital was still a very small industry, really. And it was partly because it was actually quite hard for companies to scale. There weren't many success stories. I mean, the Facebook, I think, was just about to sort of take off, really, at that, at that point, mm-hmm. which was probably one of the you know, biggest success stories, of course, out of Silicon Valley. Um, you know, Google and a couple of the American companies had really sort of done phenomenally well. And and the VC industry in, in the US already at the time was, was more mature and bigger. But in Europe, it was still, it was still very small. And it was therefore quite challenging and difficult for for companies and for entrepreneurs to actually fund, find the money. And if you just have very constrained, a very constrained capital situation, that just means this 
just this lesson less innovation so it was it was actually quite it was quite interesting to be in venture at that time uh, unfortunately i mean unfortunately for me uh, at the time so 2008 um so we then decided to close down the vc activities partly because it was just difficult to make to make the returns mm-hmm. uh, or meet the return expectations of of their own investors um, and so I then I ended up actually at um, ultimately at GE Healthcare, mm. sort of managing BD, uh, which was really M and A, so mergers and acquisition, for their healthcare IT division. Probably not many of your listeners will know that health, GE Healthcare used to have a, a very big actually um, digital health, as you would call it now, digital health business, which originally came from. The, the the sort of the packs what's called the packs systems so the picture <laughs> archiving systems because they used to i mean they they're known for the big radiology machines and then obviously you need software to to look at the images and uh, and that that's what they built in house and they branched out from there into operating systems so radiology information systems for example so sort of workflow for radiologists and then from there into sort of other things and then all the way to electronic medical records, which is sort of classic American, I guess, classic GE at the time. They were just acquiring their way into new markets. And and so they had a $2 billion revenue healthcare IT division, and I was doing M&A um, in Europe, trying to look for acquisition opportunities for them. That's re- really how I got first exposed to, I guess, what's now health tech or digital health. Uh, this was, yeah, 2008, um, sort of 2009, 2010, um, that sort of time. You know, again, really sort of enjoyed it, really loved it. I mean, GE is obviously a, you know, well-known. I mean, they've had less success, I guess, lately. But at the time, they, you know, they were they were well-known for their, you know, management strength and, you know, training their employees. And so, I, you know, I learned a lot from great people there. It was really fantastic. Um, and, and the thing that I learned, which I still now benefit from, is is also understanding how a corporate, big corporate works when they mm. look at acquisition targets for all the companies. That was quite useful. But ultimately, I just, I just wasn't a, you know, big corporate individual. I just, you know, there, you know, I guess having sort of worked in small organizations before, and you know, I mean, I wouldn't consider myself uh, an entrepreneur because I, I couldn't claim that. I mean, I think that would just be disrespectful <laughs> to all you listeners who are actually entrepreneurs. But um, you know, there's there is an entrepreneurial streak that I have in me, and that's so I, mm-hmm. you know, I just, you know, having to wait for months and months for decisions just wasn't really for me. So I, I was looking, you know, for something else, and actually, um, I was actually quite keen to get back into venture. And, you know, and, and just found this opportunity at, at Albion and, you know, got talking to the individu- individuals there and just thought this is the perfect place for me because we just see eye to eye with, you know, with each other. I mean, all the, you know, the people who, who were there at the time, most of whom, by the way, are still here. Um, and so, yeah, so I started then in 2011 uh, at Albion and um, never looked back since, really. Awesome. So that's that's me, James. If that's yeah, what a story! What a story, man! And I can see why they would uh, look at you favorably as a medical doctor, MBA from INSEAD, worked at GE Healthcare, who acquire health tech company. I mean, you know, it makes complete sense why uh, why you'd end up in conversations with the likes of Albion. But before we go into Albion and what you guys do there, I'm super interested in a, in a few bits here that I think the listeners are gonna get a bit of value from. So. First thing I want to talk about, actually, is you mentioned that as a radiologist, a genuine reason for you considering another career was simply the fact that you didn't see sunlight and you were in a dark room. Now, that strikes me as one of those things that might go unsaid quite a lot. And it might be shared within, you know, those types of circles and radiologists themselves will talk about it. And obviously, there's the the sort of 
ingest comments that radiologists are in the dark room in the basement and all the rest of it. But actually raising that as something that there'll be radiologists listening to this that might feel the same and might not realise that that is actually a genuine reason to think about doing something different. I mean, kudos to you for raising that. And actually, just talk to me a bit more about that. What was the decision to move out of medicine made up of and how much of that was a genuine large part yeah uh, so first of all i mean i don't want to be disrespectful to any practicing radiologists by the way they're doing you know phenomenal work um and i mean i think i should probably clarify that it, it wasn't the the only and the you know well it wasn't the only decision the only reason why i quit it it's what started i guess you know, my thought process are, well, actually, is this something I, I want to mm. be doing for, you know, the next 30 to 40 years? So it got, it got the thought process started, really. Mm. Then the other thing that, uh, that, that contributed to it was that I, I was just too curious. You know, mm. I had just, there were so many things off the world that I didn't know and that I didn't understand. And I've always had, I mean, maybe less so now because I, you know, I, th- I think at one point you sort of grow grow old and when you've got kids there's sort of other <laughs> things that keep you occupied but I always had uh, just this curiosity about the world which is also why I sort of traveled a lot and try to sort of pick up you know other languages and I just wanted to see other parts and I just thought well yeah, I'm going to be stuck here for the rest of my life in this sort of basement again not to disrespect anybody who you know enjoys working as a radiologist it was sort of the combination of that james really that mm. that led me to then start to look outside once you're on that bandwagon james then i think you you just there, there are a lot of opportunities um for you know i guess medics who want to do something else uh, and i think you just sort of have to then jump on them and and take the leap of faith and and, and do it and that's what i did i agree and I think what so many, you know, I get asked all the time by by people, you know, when when should you leave and, uh, you know, how much should you do and all that kind of thing. And it's so individual to people, but I, you've got to love it. And if you, if you love it, great, because you can have a wonderful career, as you've alluded to, and a f- very fulfilling career and all of those things, but you have to love it. And um, for people like yourself that are curious, I mean, I, I used to describe myself as distracted, actually, um, because I couldn't find, I, I used to look around at my colleagues that, that were thoroughly enjoying it. And I, I, I felt isolated and, um, yeah, alienated a bit, I guess, with my thought processes and, and things. So I, I do, I do understand that feeling and you're right, actually, that, medics with the skill set that they have do actually have a lot transferable and might not realize it there's the there's the yeah. perception that of pigeonholing and uh the blinkers are on and you're forced down the conveyor belt and there's all these different things but actually looking at your career yeah. that medicine can be the first springboard really and you, and it can be perceived as that and that should free people from that mentality of, of you know, you decide at 16, you're going to do certain GCSEs and then the A-levels and then like you're on that path forever from the age of 16 or 18. Like it's not, it doesn't have to be the case as, as you've shown in your career. So I have a question, right? So you went to Bain and so many people that I know go to consulting and, and have these amazing careers in various different things in the corporate world, in VC, they move on to be founders. My question is, why do you think consulting is such a springboard to, I guess, 
success and not a necessity, but I think it's a, it's clearly a springboard to lots of different successful people and, and what they end up doing. So why do you think that is? Yes, good question. Okay, I, I just want to pick you up on, on that uh, point around transferability of, uh, of, mm. of clinician skills or doctor skills. And I think the, the key thing um, is actually somebody who becomes, in my mind certainly, somebody who becomes or wants to become a medical doctor has a genuine interest in people. Mm. Uh, and I think what, what I've learned throughout my career is if you are somebody who's interested in people, you tend to be good at listening to them. You tend to sort of absorb, and that's just a it's just a um, a quality which is which is so important, uh, and so therefore you know transferable. I guess a transferable skill. So I totally totally agree with you on uh, on that actually on the transferability of the um, of the skill set for practicing or aspiring doctors. To answer your question on um, on consulting uh, and and what why is it such a good springboard? There's two two things that come to mind. I mean, first of all. If you are, if you if you are working for you know one of the top, whatever three, four, five, you know depending on how you define that bucket, but one of the top consultancies, that is a uh, first of all it's a stamp of approval, because these consultancies are known to have a pretty rigorous recruitment process, mm-hmm. uh, and then also a pretty rigorous process of putting people um, under pressure. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just making sure that they, you know, develop well, um, and, and sort of hone their skills. So there is a sort of, I guess, a reputational element to it all, which, which, which is enormously helpful. Um, that's one thing. Uh, and then the other thing is the training that the consultancies put, well, the, 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 the emphasis on, on career development, really, I think is the better way to put it. Uh, that these consultancies put on their uh, their employees, it's it's very very important for them, of course, to train up their employees uh, to become you know better at their job because ultimately you know they want the 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 most successful ones to become partners and then to sell you know and obviously generate business for them. So it's um it's very very it's it's a critical part of the of the business model of consultancies that they that they develop the careers and train their employees very well very well and and that training is is very very useful and uh, i think the you know other employees that are recruiting from these consultants just know that so i think those two things are are important and then the third thing that comes to mind is that and this is you know for pe- people who who leave a bit later in their consulting careers uh, it doesn't didn't really apply to me because i only i only spent 3 to 4 years but once you are at a you know senior engagement manager or you know principal or even sort of junior partner level you you will have built relationships with clients quite deep relationships sometimes and so what you sometimes see happen is that actually a consultant you know quote unquote jumps ship to a client into a senior role ah, I um, see. and and that's because they've 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 worked with them they really um they've built a relationship there's a personal relationship but also they've they've just they really value their advice and their input and they want to have that individual actually operationally involved in the business so that's kind of the third thing but that that is it, it, it's not it's less common i'd say but it does happen mm-hmm. um and that could be a, a massive springboard that's really really interesting because of course if they have been working uh, with them, they will they will know their caliber. They'll know their quality. They'll they'll know that they understand their business. And you're right; they can they can slot in at a higher level. I hadn't actually considered that. You know, one thing that I, I've asked that to a few people actually, and one thing that 
uh, somebody said to me once, they said, the reason that it makes me a good founder is because I actually know how much work can be done in a day because they work you hard. So I thought, <laughs> I, I thought that was quite interesting. Interesting perspective. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Okay. The final question I've got on your, on your career, Christoph, and there's so much that I could ask you about, about your experience at GE and, and stuff, but perhaps I'll leave that to, to the what makes a good VC question that I'll ask you later. But how useful is an MBA? And I'm going to leave it very broad. How useful is an MBA? Uh, particularly because you've done it at INSEAD, which is what, Paris, Fontainebleau, I believe? Yeah, it's probably one of the best ones, I think, if it not is. the best. <laughs> uh, well, thanks. For that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a well-known school. Um, and I'm sure there will be lots of perspectives that you know, people will have given you. Um, I think my, my you know, very personal perspective is that I found my, my wife. So you know, I, I, that, was, um, that was obviously something that um, you don't set out to do. It just you know, it happens. It actually happens quite often, it seems. <laughs> um, but I think that the, so from a professional perspective, the MBA, I think is very useful for somebody who hasn't got a business background like I did. Um, I did two years at Bain beforehand. So I'd learned you know, I guess sort of corporate principles and mm. the basics really, but not the level of detail that you would in an academic setting. And uh, and so that was very, very useful for me. I mean, you know, understanding, I guess, what, is, what does beta actually mean? You know, what is the correlation, you know, with the market? What does it mean? Um, that That is actually quite useful. So there's, there's stuff which you just, um, if you're not, if you don't have an economics background, it's just actually even today, you know, quite, quite useful that you pick up there. I think if you have a, um, if you have an economics or, or a sort of business background, it, it may be the academic piece may be sort of less useful for you. But the thing that's extremely useful is the network that you're building at those schools. Um, mm. It's, it's, I mean, I was absolutely astonished at INSEAD how how broad, how global, um, and how impactful a network this is. I mean, the you know some of the classmates, some of my classmates have gone on to become very successful entrepreneurs. By the way, mm-hmm. um, who you know in you know one in Singapore, you know another one um, actually here in the UK, um, just around the world. But and some have ended up you know running large businesses as CEOs. So. Um, and then there's alumni, of course, which are not in my um, from my promotion for my intake, um, who just have, you know, um, senior positions, lots of small. So it's just it's just a very 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 useful network, um, which professionally can be very very helpful. Uh, and then I think the la- the last thing I'd say is that they um, these business schools tend to be very good at helping you land good jobs. They've got a career. Uh, department which just advises you um, has good links into sort of employers um, and they just really sort of prep you for the also the prep the the interviews so it's quite it's quite useful um, to go through that um, and actually sometimes can you know make a difference between um, between landing a good job and not so uh, so yeah I mean it's it's I definitely recommend it it is you know I mean this is less on a professional side um, it, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it's, mm. there is quite a lot of partying going on at MBA school because <laughs> you know the people have made a bit of money already. It's not like you're at university where you sort of you you know you have to live on a shoestring. You've made a bit of so there's a bit of a you know cushion there. So you can actually um, you know you, you can you can sort of you can celebrate and people. Just celebrate. <laughs> 
Nice. Um, come on, let's move on to, to Albion and, and talk about some health tech. So um, tell us tell us about Albion. Tell us about what you're up to there, who you invest in, what thesis you've got, what you're up to in, in the health tech space, biotech space. Yeah, talk to me about Albion. Sure. So Albion, we are a pretty well-established, uh, I guess, B2B software and healthcare investor um, in the UK. Um, we, in total, we've got sort of roughly 850, 900 million pounds in assets under management. Um, the vast majority of that is in venture capital strategies. And really, we have um, two strategies. One is um, a, um, a set of funds which is which is basically focused on um, Series A um, software, so that's B two B software, and then health tech, um, which is mostly digital health, and we can talk about that in more detail in a minute. Um, and you know, Series A by Series A, I mean typically we would invest between three to seven million in a, in a first check mm. uh, and then continue to fund those companies as they grow and mature. So mm. we're trying to deploy somewhere between 10 to 15 million pounds per company. And just to give you a little bit of a sort of sense, so you know the, the companies when we first get involved, they tend to have somewhere between 20 to 30 employees mm-hmm. on average, maybe around a million revenues. Um, and they're looking to scale. Um, mm. and, and that's when we get involved. Um, and as I said, it's B2B software and then digital health, really, or health tech. And then we have a, um, another strategy, which is, which is actually focused on a specific university in the, in the UK, uh, UCL, University College of London. Mm-hmm. Um, so UCL is a, is a pretty well-known university in the UK. Outside of the UK, maybe less so, but they are actually world leading in a number of areas and one of those is uh, what's called advanced therapeutics so that's cell and gene therapy uh, mm-hmm. for example um, they're also world leading when it comes to computer science some of your listeners may have heard of deep mind that got mm-hmm. acquired by google for a lot of money when it was basically just you know a bunch of people <laughs> um and uh it, it's now deep mind is now the ai engine for google um, so, you know, most of the stuff that Google does in AI is actually what used to be DeepMind, and that is a UCL spin-up. Mm. So this fund that we have, which is called the UCL Technology Fund, which really invests in um, in university spin-outs and then can also do just project-based um, finance uh, financing as well, um, but invests in those two areas, really, so advanced therapeutics and um you know, I guess deep tech is the word now, isn't it? Mm. So it's computer science, but there's also physical science, so sort of hardware. Um, and 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 that is much earlier stage, as you would expect from a sort of university spin-out fund. So um, we, we tend to sort of invest initially in the hundreds of thousands and then go up to maybe a 5 million check uh, in total. So that's that's really sort of Albion in a, in a nutshell. How do you guys define digital health or how do you personally define digital health in this context? Because, yeah, therapeutic, cell and gene therapy, therapeutic, yeah, I get that. When you say digital health, what do you mean? Have you got any examples? Like what are the types of things that you look at in, that, in when you describe that as a sector? Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I'll maybe sort of explain, I guess, what our philosophy and investment strategy is. Mm. Um, and then we, we, we can take it from there. So we we very broadly divide, I guess, digital health. Uh, and I'm, I'm using digital health and health tech interchangeably. Mm. 
some you know may know, but I'm using it interchangeably um, uh, in sort of two in two buckets. And one we call digital pharma, so that is mostly software sold into the mostly pharmaceutical industry, maybe a little bit med tech as well. Um, and that's really across the, I guess, pharmaceutical industry value chain. And if you imagine the value chain of pharmaceutical industry, it starts at research, obviously, and goes all the way to sort of commercial. Um, and there are different, you know, different, um, I guess, tools, software tools that pharma companies and the pharmaceutical industry use. Uh, and that those are sort of the companies that we invest in, in that digital pharma bucket. And then the other we call digital care, um, which is which is really, um, and that's that it's not just software. It's oftentimes actually a software and a services, and sometimes even a hardware element, selling, if you will, into the the health in the broader sense the healthcare systems, and mostly that is actually um, selling almost to sort of payers. So the you know the in the UK uh, it is the NHS, but you know outside of the UK it would be. Um, you know, insurances. It it can be employers as well, by the way. Yeah. Um, it could be payers in the US. It could be the um, you know the health plans or the ACOs in the US and that sort of thing. And it has a services element oftentimes because it's actually we've found it certainly our experience quite hard to just scale a company which just sells a software to the healthcare because it's always you know, there's always a change management implementation. People don't want to sort of really use it. So actually you have to offer a solution. So therefore you have to include the service and basically build the stack yourself, the exactly entire that. stack. And I'm yeah. using stack here, which is a term borrowed from tech to describe, you know, technology plus the service, plus potentially the hardware. So again, offer a solution because ultimately you're selling outcomes, right? That's what Absolutely you're doing. Absolutely So that's, that's broadly how we look at it. That's broadly how we look at, I guess, digital health or health tech. So digital health, in, in my definition, actually also includes, therefore, services and um, sometimes hardware. Nice. So I have a question now. When you see a company in that space around about the size and revenues and employees that you're looking for, what is it about the first interaction with that founder, that CEO, that team, what is it that's going to impress you? What is it that makes your head turn to think, mm, actually, and it might be something about the company, it might be something about the people, it might be something about just that meeting and interaction itself. What is it that turns your head when it comes to thinking, okay, yeah, this looks promising from a first meeting perspective? It's a good question. I think the thing that uh, applies to any company really, which, which, um, you know, impresses us um, is really, I guess, the you know the passion and the vision of the of the leadership team um, and the, the founders. You know that that and it's just you know having 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 been in the investing world now for almost fifteen years, the the thing that makes or breaks an investment is always the team. Mm. <laughs> you know the the idea the idea and technology is almost secondary. The market is important too. Uh, mm. And so that's where I think the answer gets a bit more complicated when you, you can, what is actually the problem you're trying to tackle? How difficult is, is it to tackle it? Because there can be, a, there's a huge variance in the healthcare world um, around, you know, scaling, uh, the ability to scale a business quickly, depending on what specific area you're operating in. Uh, but the thing that's sort of common and, and that I look for in any sort of business is, is the passion and the vision of the, you know, of the, of the founding team. Because you need, you need that one, you need that vision, 
in order to actually grow a business to something which is sizable, big enough for the venture investor to make their returns, because ultimately we have to generate returns for our investors, right? The money always comes from somewhere. It's not our money. Uh, and they, they are demanding returns. And so therefore, because, you know, as I'm sure that most of your listeners will know in the venture game, most of the investments, you know, either fail is maybe the wrong word, but don't actually return money or maybe just return a little bit of money. You have to basically always um, see uh, yourself to making a, a substantial return on any investment. And, and that is really, it's just very important that the founder is very, very visionary. Uh, what we, mm-hmm. you know, what, what we, what we ideally don't want is somebody who sort of says, well, that's great. And I can sell this now for you know, a little bit more than the investor paid. And, um, and that's sort of it. And everybody's happy. Well, that's not quite how venture venture works, is it? And so the vision is very, very important. And then the passion is just, you, you, you need that. I mean, in any, in any individual, I mean, they need to display that passion because they need to, not only convince all the customers that this is the right thing, but they need to, you know, hire the best people. They need to attract the, you know, other investors down the line. And so it's, that is just very, very important too. So, I mean, those are the things that we typically look for uh, in, in, in across all the, you know, all the, all the companies, I mean, even including non-health tech uh, companies. Uh, and then, as I said, becomes, then it becomes really, you know, um, a question around, well, actually, what, what's the particular problem you're trying to solve? And that's where the answer gets more complicated. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, 15 years in venture, you've clearly got certain technical metrics that you look for and all those types of things. It's interesting to me, though, that after 15 years investing, it does just come back to this more abstract point about vision and about passion. I think it's rare as well, actually, in that I think there's a dichotomy for health tech founders between practicing building a business in a very evidence-based world that wants a lot of practicality and, frankly, evidence around what you're saying versus then the wild optimism of communicating to investors this vision and this passion that you're talking about that's a that's a tough knife edge to walk in and actually a a, a dichotomy in that i think it's it's arguably very different skill sets needed for, to be evidence based versus to be vision i think that in that venn diagram the area where they overlap is actually arguably quite small you might tell me differently but it, it does strike me that that's a rare it's a rare occurrence to see both of those things perhaps to commun- to then add a third circle to that Venn diagram the ability to communicate that effectively and convincingly might be a third but I, mm. I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that because I think there'd be people listening that might go well you know, I've tried to be visionary. I've tried to show my passion, but then they just ask me for what my numbers are. <laughs> they just ask me for this and say that my market's actually not as big as what I've said. And similarly, there might be people on the other side that then say, well, they wanted the evidence. It's, it, it's a tough one, right? So I'm interested in your, in your thoughts on that. Where have you seen that done well? Like, have you got an example of that that you could perhaps share maybe or something along those lines? Yeah, and that's a good question. And you raise a very, very important point in, in healthcare you know, which which is almost um, sort of contradicting myself, but you need the patience. Right? <laughs> Things just move slower. They don't they don't move the same pace as you know B two B 
outside of healthcare, let alone B2C. I mean, B2C is the area where you can get the super fast scaling. Mm. You ju- it's, I mean, there are, <laughs> there are examples where, you know, people have scaled businesses very, very quickly in health tech, but it's, it is the absolute exception and you need that patience and you're absolutely right. You need the evidence, um, you know, the, the, the healthcare buyers, which are effectively the payers, the insurances, the NHSs of this world, they do want to see evidence. And it's just, it's just the way that, you know, the healthcare world works for good reason. Right. Um, for you know, for very, very, very good reason. Um, I guess the reason you know, I still think that passion and vision are so important. It's almost because of that they're even more important than mm. in a sort of non-healthcare setting. Because if you don't have that sort of passion for healthcare and for actually, you know, a, I mean, that you know, the metrics are important and they're they're absolute. They're sort of sanity. If they, if they, you don't have them, mm. then it's, you're not going to succeed because mm. you can't then convince the investors that actually you are on top of your metrics and you understand how what it means to sort of scale a business. Mm. Um, so they, they they are definitely. But because it just takes, you know, so much longer, this sort of passion is just so important. And and the the you know the 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 focus on not just the metrics but also helping, you know, patients. And, you know, just improving the health of, I guess, of populations of patients is, is just something that I think you, you have to be driven by. If you're not driven by that, you just, my view is you just really shouldn't be, you shouldn't be doing it in healthcare. Do it somewhere else. Do yeah. it, you know, do it outside of healthcare. Yeah. Um, because I think that's what, that's, I mean, certainly that's how I became a medical doctor. And that's why I love investing in health tech. It, it is the passion to, you know, yes, we're making, you know, hopefully we're making money for our, you know, for our investors. And we, we, we've got to, because otherwise we won't get the mandate. But, you know, what I'm emotionally driven by is to make an impact, mm-hmm. to really help patients and help, you know, get, you know, help them get well help them overcome their mental health problems. I mean, there's so many good things that our portfolio companies do, which I'm so proud of. And that's really what makes me get up in the morning. Um, and I think mm. that's what that's that's what I mean by passion and the, and the founders. That's just what they need to have. Nice. So before we wrap up, Christoph, to perhaps give us a bit more context, are there any companies that you sit on the board of or that you've invested in, in your, or just that you know of in your portfolio in health tech, in digital health that you can kind of mention? Uh, let's see if we know them. <laughs> just gives us an idea of the types of uh, types of companies you're supporting. Yeah, I'm at the risk of sort of um, sounding biased. I'm not biased. We, we, you know, we love all our portfolio companies. We, you know, we think they all have, have a massive impact. But it's just I'm just sort of picking out two now, um, which which I you know happen to be on the board of. So um, one is a uh, a company which um, tackles uh, diabetes and sort of obesity, helps people really um, lose weight, which is a, it's a company called Oviva. Oh yeah, um, and they're working Mark. very, uh, very closely with it. Yes, Mark Jenkins, absolutely. Yeah, he's, yeah, I know he's, Mark. Um, he's been on he's there. Medical officer. Yeah, no, no. He's, he's one of these ex-doctors um, and ex-consultants. <laughs> that has, that has, uh, made the jump. An ex-consultant, absolutely, has made the jump to uh, to business. And yeah, he's he's their um, chief medical officer in UK, UK head. And um, yeah, so they're working very closely with the NHS. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with what's called the Healthier You program, which is uh, mm-hmm. a diabetes prevention program, really. So people who are pre-diabetic and sort of early stages of type 2 diabetes, um, if, you know, if, if, if those patients manage to lose some weight, actually, oftentimes they can 
um, much improved their diabetes control. Um, there's now lots of trials and actually evidence uh, of uh, um, of diabetes reversion. Actually, if you if you lose enough weight, and so that's what that company does. They they do that um, using technology uh, in a way which is just um, you know much more engaging for the patient than the what sort of what used to be just you know, conversations, sit-downs with dietitians. Um, they're just using technology in a way which I guess, you know, other companies are using um, just to make that interaction much more efficient and also more effective um, for, and it's a win-win-win, everybody wins. The, mm-hmm. You know, the dietitian wins, the patient wins, the healthcare system wins because costs are lower, people are sort of happy. And and it's just it's just wonderful to see what they're doing. They've, they've been quite successful in the UK. They also operate outside of the UK. Um, and, and so that's one that I, you know, we're very, very fond of. We backed them in 2016. This was, those were the early Oof. days. And um, they've had a lot of growth since then that you must be pretty happy with. <laughs> yeah, no, no, they've, they've, they've done well. They've, they've clearly done well. Um, yeah. They, yeah, they, I mean, they, it was, it's also good timing. Um, it's not, it's not trivial though what they're doing. I mean, it, it's mm. th- this isn't easy. I mean, these sort of models, you know, we've got a service layer. There's a lot of complexity, but you've just got a fantastic management team there. I mean, yeah. you know, Mark is so great, and then Kai, the uh, the CEO, they're yeah. just they're just enormous. I mean, they just so we're very very proud of them. Um, and then the other one I would uh, I would mention is uh, as an example of a company in the sort of digital pharma side. So you know, Viva would be on the digital care side. Mm. Uh, and uh, UMET is the company that, that's in the flag. Again, this is just you know pure random. We, we love all our other digital pharma companies as well, but uh, UMET is one that we backed also quite early. And I guess if you sort of back companies early, you sort of they they, they become quite dear. Um, so this is a a company that uh, connects uh, at the core of the technology is connecting uh, the electronic medical record with the patient in a way which is. GDPR, so privacy compliant, and also HIPAA, that's the equivalent in the US, HIPAA compliant. Uh, And what that enables them to do is um, to do what's called um, sort of uh, a phase four or non-interventional research, um, you know, on, on patients in a way which is much more efficient because you basically, if if you're a, a sponsor, so somebody who runs a clinical trial, maybe a pharma company, maybe academic, um, you can go through the uh, medical records and then select patients based on you know on their on their sort of criteria, and then the system automatically pings the treating physician. You know, we've got this patient here, which could be eligible for enrollment in this trial. Are you okay for us to contact them? The physician clicks yes, I'm okay. Then an SMS or an email or even letter goes out to the patient. Well, mostly it's SMS and email, uh, and says, well, look, you know, and it actually comes from the doctor. So doctor so and so says you're eligible. Would you be like to participate in that trial? And sometimes that may just be give your data, uh, and then you sort of take yes. So it's all sort of on, and that enables them to enroll patients very very effectively into trials. And what they're focusing on now is is basically what's called a cohort studies. So those are longitudinal you know, sometimes year-long, you know, um, data collections or trials, uh, things like Parkinson's disease, things like um, lung disease, um, and, and are starting to get some really good traction. Um, it's difficult to do because you have to build these pipes first, the connectors. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the chief exec there, Matt Wilson, he's one of these passionate uh, and visionary founders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he just, you know, he was, for years and years, he was knocking on doors, knocking on doors, trying to convince people to do it. And, you know, and finally, you know, he's sort of, he's, he's, he's getting there, which, which is just great to see. So he's really now helping um, patients get onto trials that otherwise wouldn't get onto trials, sponsors to run trials, 
you know, for like a fraction of the cost that mm-hmm. they, they, they would be able to, to do otherwise. And so, again, it's a win-win-win. We're sort of super happy, you know, what, what he's doing. So that will be, I guess, another one that, that I'd highlight. I love it. Christoph, thank you so much. In 10 seconds or 15 seconds, can you just, can you just tell me what makes a good VC? How much of it is luck? How much of it is hard work? How much of it is background? <laughs> Well, a lot of it is hard work. There's a bit of luck. There's always luck. Uh, I I think um, curiosity, I would actually say, Mm, is what makes a really good VC. Curiosity and, you know, and listening to people uh, and just being interested in individuals and people, actually, because at the end of the day, it's a people's business. That is what VC is. Love it. What a note to end on. Christoph, thank you so much for coming on. If people want to get in touch with you or to learn more about Albion VC, what's the best way for them to do so? Just ping me a note on LinkedIn. Awesome. Um, That's probably the best way. Awesome. And we will stick the link to Christoph's VC in the description of this episode. Christoph, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.